along, keep the world going on, Dustin. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers, and I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so pleased to have in the studio with me, Leslie Jameson. Leslie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> well, it's good to see you. And um, I should say, we're taping the show. It's the 4th of April, uh, 2014. Um Leslie, you're in town. You, you'll be reading at Literati. Um, and, and well, and we've got the book that you'll be reading from, um, your collection of essays, The Empathy Exams, just out with Gray Wolf Press. Um, thanks to Aaron Kotke for sending me a copy of the book and, and, um, and helping to set this, this up, this conversation. Um, Leslie, how, I'll read your short bio, and then we'll talk about how things are going with the, the book's release. Um, Leslie Jameson is the author of a novel, The Gin Closet, which was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times First Fiction Prize. Her essays have appeared in The Believer, Harper's, Oxford American, A Public Space, and Tin House. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. Above a smoke shop, right? Yes. Yeah. Actually, but, okay, right. Very. <laughs> how do you know where I live? Yeah. I know. Well, like Google Earth happens. No. Yeah. It's between. It's above a smoke shop, and it's between the entrances between a smoke shop and a braid shop, which is usually how I direct people when they love braiding, like a braiding salon. So oh. that's how I give people directions when oh, they're coming to my house. That's kind of wonderful. Yeah. It sounds and you've so gone too far. If yeah. Yeah. If you if you reach the fruit shop, you're in the wrong, you're on the wrong part of the block. Yeah. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Well, I think maybe a, a one of the dangers or or maybe joys, I don't know, depending on how you look at it, Leslie, for publishing a collection of essays is that people might start to have 
like this idea of who you are, this this guiding narrator voice that you're reading, this this lens of how you're perceiving experience and um, uh, shaped um, stories. So then you think that, oh, well, you live above the smoke shop and it really does become part of this imagined. But I think that might be on your website. Maybe. Yeah, I, I, don't I, think, think, yeah. I think it is too. No, I didn't think you'd really scope me out with a telescope. Yeah, it's funny. The, there There is a way that I think when you write, especially when you write personal essays, that people sort of um, build up this character for you based on it. And I recently somebody tweeted at me, um, I think what was a meme, not like an actual physical object, but it, what it looked like was a T-shirt with my face on it that just said WWLJD. Oh. And somebody wrote a... Um, That's a vote of confidence. <laughs> yeah, WWLJD. Really nice. I feel like it's like something where I like... I could imagine myself invoking it and being like, what would? And then I'd be like, wait, no, but that's me. <laughs> like, well, what am I supposed to do? But she said, she wrote me an email to explain what she had meant by it. And she said that it, she had been trying to branch out into a new kind of writing. She'd been a technical writer and had written something more like an essay. But when once it went through the editorial process, the editor at the publication had um, uh wanted to really tone down the voice and cut out all the things that this woman had felt made the piece distinctive and worthwhile. And she was kind of breaking it down with her friend and saying, well, what should I do? Should I pull the piece? Should I let them do their, you know, run roughshod over it? And her friend said, well, what would they both been reading this book? And her friend said, well, what would Leslie Jameson do? And that became this kind of rallying cry between them. And like getting that email and the t-shirt was like, was this like amazing moment for me where I was like, oh, this is like all I've ever wanted my writing to do is sort of like touch down in somebody's life in that way. So, and it clearly did. And it's influ- influencing what they might do as writers. Too. Yeah. Or like and giving gr- them, and, and if it can give them sort of that feeling of confidence to just like follow the piece they want to write rather than the piece the editor wants to see or something like that, that feels like. God, great. Good that it could do that. Like, <laughs> well, and and this might be kind of strange, but what what would you advise someone in that situation? Because would you think like maybe it's a matter of finding a new home for the piece? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was funny because when she articulated that dilemma, I had actually gone through something really similar to that just a couple weeks ago. I mean, I think it's something writers keep running into over and over again, but I had written a feature for a magazine where it became clear about two revision rounds in that the kind of piece they wanted was not the kind of piece that I wanted to write. And I did decide to take it elsewhere, which is exactly what I would have advised her to do if she had, I don't know, teleported in the WWLGG teleporter and asked me what to do. But um, yeah, I think with that kind of stuff, you just have to trust what you think the piece should be. And that if you keep, even if that particular piece never finds a home, that it's only by continuing to write the stuff that is yours that you, you will find the places that would be good homes for you that sort of even if it takes some time you have to be sort of patient but that you'll find those kind of like safe harbors to dock in and can you talk us through part of the experience of where were some of the the places because harpers um where where were some of the places where your essays initially found a safe harbor before they became this this great collection the empathy exams with gray wolf yeah i am there are a few magazines that have been real supporters for my work for a long time um a public space in brooklyn yeah bridget hughes uh, left uh, paris review a while ago and started a public space which is just doing phenomenally it's 
such wow. a it's like such a it's a lovely magazine and it's Beautiful. good looking too. Yeah, it is good looking. I know. I think I keep it on my bedside table for a really long time, even when I'm not reading it anymore, just because it's so nice to kind of pet it. Um, and the Believer, I've had a long relationship with, and they've been really wonderful. I love the way that they have I don't know what you call them arguments in fiction, but the way that they have little summaries at the beginning where you get to list off all the different things that show up in a piece. Um, I love that as a kind of sieve that you can run a piece through and then all these glimmering little fragments kind of rise up to the surface and oh, get into a list yeah yeah um, <laughs> I hadn't thought of it like that it's somehow. a neat yeah it's it's they're the only magazine I where I get to do that when I publish a piece with them is sort of draw out all these little pieces um uh so those were both um felt like kindred spirit publications from early on and yes yeah, some some pieces like um the piece in here about morgellons disease was one that i tried to sell on pitch um to number of magazines and nobody was interested i think i'm really terrible at writing pitches because i have a good amount of success selling whole pieces but i not as much success in the past selling pitches and i think part of that is that something comes together in my, maybe this is just retrospective narration, but if something comes together in my execution of a piece that maybe isn't evident there. In the idea as you're, as you're yeah. proposing it. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting to think about, though. I mean, I do think that part of the mode that I want to write in is a mode where I'm sort of reaching for juxtapositions or entanglements or entwinings that aren't necessarily the most intuitive. And so maybe if you're spelling that out just as a set of notions it's not it's not clear how it all kind of you have to do the thing to show why it would be worthwhile to do the thing right. like yeah um but with the Morgellons piece it was um would you want to tell people a little bit about what that is because sure. that's a really compelling yeah uh, and e kind of eerie yeah <laughs> to make you think about what the possibilities are and yeah and what is. to believe it is. In your own experience. I know. I don't know when the show will run, but I hope it's not during a meal. I've always, it was oh, funny. I was, I was, it's usually <laughs> during drive time. People are going to probably this be is good drive time driving. Anecdote. Or, yeah. Because yeah. um, I was just, I was doing a lunch with my publisher and a few other folks, and my editor asked me to explain more Gellens, and I was like, I'm really not sure no. I should explain it while everybody's eating. And they have, the editor obviously was intimate with the, with the essay oh, yeah. itself. Yeah. That's, no, he knew what he was asking oh, for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Some mischief there. <laughs> I know. And I should say, I also say Google image search Morgellons at your own peril, which somebody was saying, um, but, you know, was suggesting that I should have printed a warning with the book itself, like to, you know, only no. Google image search if you're ready, but people are going to do it no matter what you say. But um, anyway, Morgellons disease is um, a controversial illness and it's a skin disease and people who identify as having Morgellons report a number of different skin symptoms like itching, sores, lesions, a feeling of crawling insects, but the most remarkable distinctive kind of uh Eerie is a great word for it. Symptom that they report is having these strange, unidentifiable fibers that are coming out of their skin. Um, and often they'll look at their skin kind of obsessively through a magnifying glass to get a better look at these fibers. Um, but the deal is that most doctors don't believe that you, maybe they believe something's going on, but they don't believe unidentifiable fibers are are coming out of these people's skin. So often if people go to a doctor believing they have more gallons, they'll get diagnosed with something called delusions of parasitosis instead, which is basically like this is something more psychosomatic. Um, so the piece is centered on my curiosity, not so much about 
answering this debate of oh, are the fibers real or not, but figuring out what the Morgellons community is like and going to this um, annual conference that they have every year in Austin, Texas, just to see what they, when they gather together, what are they looking to get out of that gathering and what kinds of things are happening and what sorts of bonds are forming. Um, and so that was the venture of the piece. And actually, because I couldn't sell it on pitch, I sort of faced this decision point where I was like, I don't have a lot of money. I'm really interested in going to this conference in Austin, but nobody's, I don't have some big glossy magazine. Funding it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So um, that was a fork in the road moment where it was like, you know, was the credit card going to come out or not? But you believed in the piece. There I, was something. And what was it about? Like, Because have you made decisions other in, like, in other forks where mm-hmm. you haven't gone? Mm-hmm. But what was it about this fork that proved compelling? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think part of it for me was that there was something that felt so hard to me about the kind of double tiered nature of what they were going through, that they felt like they were experiencing these physical symptoms or certainly a feeling of discomfort in their own bodies. But then layered on top of that was this feeling of being kind of disdained and mocked and disregarded by everybody that they were seeking help from. And I was just like, there's, the the only thing worse than being in pain is feeling like your pain isn't real to another person. Um, and so there, I had a just something in my heart kind of leapt up towards that. And um, I had also I've had enough varied experiences of discomfort in my own body and varied experiences with doctors that I think parts of my past were kind of rising up to attach to what I saw them going through. Maybe knowing that there's some doctors that could have listened to you in a different way. Yeah, exactly. And and seeing that in their experience. Exactly. So it completely fits with your empathy. Of course, that's why it's in the collection, the empathy (laughs) exams, I suppose. Yeah, well, and it was funny because it was actually one of the first pieces. I wrote a number of the pieces here before I knew that it was going to become a collection. But the Morgellons piece was maybe the first piece I wrote thinking that, you know, okay, I know that I'm going to write this collection about empathy. I know this is going to be a part of it. But the the uh, peril of that was that I think the first drafts I wrote of that piece, which was, first of all, far too long and really swollen and baggy, but among other things, it included the word empathy itself like 42 times or something like that. Because <laughs> I think I had, the th- I, like, I had the theme on my mind. And right, so it just right. kept coming out over and over again. So I sort of had to rein it in and be like, okay, just because you know you're writing about empathy doesn't mean you have to say empathy. <laughs> or hitting <laughs> Hitting the reader yeah. a bit over yeah. the head with yeah. A, yeah 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 huh and well it's so interesting to think about the the idea of this draft being so long how did you make some of the decisions to rein it in or is that a longer maybe we should do that answer after the break sure yeah okay let's talk about that we'll go to break for a short one um today on the program leslie jameson is here we've got her collection of essays out with gray wolf press the empathy exams on the table before us tex and lizzie are behind the glass I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Like the whales. 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. Today on Living Writers, Leslie Jameson is here. Her collection of essays, The Empathy Exams, um, which we'll hear in just a few minutes. Leslie, you'll read maybe a bit for us, will Mm -hmm. you? Thank you. Um, And so you picked the songs for today, and we just had some PJ Harvey. Um, (laughs) So tell us why this song today. So this song, this song, um, The Wind, was on my mind because I just, last night, I did a reading in Kalamazoo at the awesome bookstore Book Bug. And part of the reason that I was in Kalamazoo was, um, was really due to the care and enthusiasm of um, Kirsten Jennings, who was uh, who invited me out to Kalamazoo, had read the collection, had loved the collection, um, had promised me that she would make at home any snack food I desired. I'm so full of homemade chocolate dip pretzels right now, I can barely stand or move. Um, but when she was driving me home from the reading, so I already had this feeling we were kind of kindred spirits in a way, and um, she was driving me home from the reading, and we got in her car, and there was that moment where when she turned on the ignition, I could tell she'd been listening to music really loudly on her way there. And it was um, that song, the PJ Harvey song, which I hadn't heard in years, but was definitely kind of the an- anthem of my a, a large portion of my high school experience. Um, and so I was, oh, I was like, remembered it. I loved it all over again. Um, so that if I could dedicate a song on the radio dedicated to Kirsten so <laughs> oh that's great and and like you see picturing you guys driving in the Michigan night mm-hmm. with that song mm-hmm. and blasting mm-hmm. and yeah. I think there was something about I mean I think a lot of women I mean my hope is that both men and women connect to this collection but um in particular like the final essay in the collection is called Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain and I know that was an essay that Kirsten was really drawn to and it's an essay where I talk about a lot of female singers and how they sing pain um, and so there was something about driving through the night listening to this like really strong female voice where it felt like we were being kind of guided by one of the spirits that is underneath the collection too so yeah those, that's one of those life moments, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was a neat, it was a really neat time. And it's one of those things where, you know, um, I'm not, I'm not on like a, you know, all decked out book tour or something, but there is a kind of exhaustion to hitting the road and, you know, showing, waking up in a different town every day and stuff. But there are these moments where you feel like you just connect to another human being who has connected to your words in some way that are the best. I mean, it's just the best. So that, and that did feel like one of those moments. So some sort of natural bridge. Yeah. Or so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So to speak. Well, yeah. thanks for picking the song to play yeah. today. Yeah. I, that was, that was, that was brilliant. Okay. So as promised before the break, um, you mentioned that in your first run through, um, of the essay, what's the what is the title of that essay? Devil's Bait. Devil's Bait. Um, thank you. Um, th- it was sort of this long, uh, swollen draft. Yeah. How did you go about making some of the initial pairings away? Mm-hmm. Um, besides taking out some of the forty-two. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I certainly had some wonderful help from um, my editor. I ended up working with an editor named James Marcus, who's a wonderful editor at Harper's Magazine. And so he helped me. He was really excited about the piece when he read it. But he said, you know, some of this is gonna, some of this is gonna have to go. And part of that was just about length. And part of that was a sort of natural shape the piece the piece needed. But one of the big things was there were certain ideas that I was so obsessed by that I kept saying them over and over again. And so some of the work of editing was just figuring out like, 
like a great example would be like a feeling of guilt. So if I had this feeling of guilt about am I writing about my subjects, these Mark Ellen's patients in a different way than they would want to be written about? And um, are they going to feel betrayed? That was something I was struggling with so much that I kept obsessively articulating it on the page because it was an internal struggle, which is fine. It's very natural and human. But And for you, it felt like perhaps part of the process yeah. as you were building it. Right. To sort of bu- to be building and simultaneously declaring some of the anxieties I was having about that building. Yeah. Um, and so I think part of... <clears throat> Part of the editing process wasn't just cutting out some of those sections or some of those iterations so that it wouldn't be repetitive, but also kind of if you pare something down, you can create a little bit more narrative drama where it's like instead of articulating the guilt over and over again throughout the piece, the feeling of guilt rises up closer to the end. So it's kind of a little bit more of a crescendo, a little bit more of a turn. And perhaps compressed there, but yeah. at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little bit more, more pointed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And do you feel like uh, for the, because when you mentioned having an editor for this, is it something that maybe time and distance from the piece would have, uh, like if you were just sort of working on your on your own with it, Leslie, that might have also allowed you that way in. Yeah. But because of the time frame, it's helpful to have that editor someone you trust or make what they say makes sense yeah well in this case it was definitely both because I did a fair amount of editing on my own before it went to James at Harper's so I sort of had my my round that was me editing it and then a second round that was him but in that first round it really was time and distance I mean when I I wrote the first draft right when I came back from Austin my mind and my heart were so full of everything I'd seen and I just wanted to get everything down because I think I was scared of forgetting it. I just wanted there to be a record of everything I'd experienced. And so there was that sort of initial draft had to be the fullest bloated version. And then I stepped back and could come back and be like, okay, here are the really interesting parts. And then and then James and I did a sort of third pass. So well, thanks for telling us like the story of revision, because that <laughs> is I mean, I think it's it's, it's interesting to hear uh, and people's really and I'm sure with each of the pieces. Um, well, maybe I shouldn't say I'm sure. Um, Maybe like each of them had a different revision had played a, a a really different role in each. Yeah, that's definitely fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um they all had I mean, some of them sort of came out much closer to what they needed to be. The title essay, which is probably the most personal of all of them, went through, I would say, definitely the most extensive revision process. Because I think with personal experience, it's even more important that you get a little bit of distance. And so I was writing about certain experiences and then I wrote about them, you know, I was writing about them maybe two or three years out and then I revised. So I was writing about them four years out and then writing about them five years out, you know, and with each year of distance, I think there were new layers of what I was seeing in those experiences and sort of certain layers of clutter and resentment and baggage, I think got loosened a little bit and cleared away. So and so uh, hearing you describe that the time passing mm-hmm. also, Leslie, um, so with the essays for you, is it fair to say that um, like you have a different relationship to writing essays and this collection of essays than you do, for example, the novel, your novel, The Gin Closet, which may have been like in a different time frame. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, um, so is that sort of... Um, maybe the sort of like the gift of the essay in a way for the essayist or yeah. I don't yeah. know, maybe that's over. 
<laughs> yeah, well, one I mean, it too sparkly. Or so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do think. I mean, one. I mean, I'm a real right now, at least in my life, I'm a real champion for the essay. So there is no sparkle too sparkly <laughs> for this essayist on the side of the table. But um, I, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I there are similar kinds of liberation have come up for me in the revision process for both the essays and the novel, where I think that works really come alive in revision when you realize that you were following some sort of rule or instruction that you don't have to follow. And the process of revising is kind of like liberating yourself from that rule. So like in my novel, it was originally told um, just from one woman's perspective and about three drafts in, it was about the relationship between two women. And about three drafts in, I started thinking, I want more of this other woman. I want more of her story. And, and her I, voice, and her, so to speak. Yes. So, yes, exactly. And it actually happened in Detroit. Um, I was stuck there overnight. It's perfect to be <laughs> telling the story of Michigan. Um, I was stuck in Detroit overnight, and I remember staying in my airport hotel and writing some stuff down on a napkin that was from the second woman's perspective and then just thinking I can tell half of this novel from her point of view like there's nobody there's no rule saying I can't and so I just it was an amazing moment and kind of a terrifying moment because I thought I'd written a whole novel but I had just written half a novel and and I had to come to terms with that but it was also very freeing because I was like well I can tell this story the way I want to tell it and I think that a lot of these essays had some version of that moment where I was like if I feel a craving to do something a certain way like there's nothing I've built up maybe certain obstacles or limitations but there's no reason they have to be there like I can just do it like there's no reason not to (laughs) like with the last essay um this uh, the one we were talking about earlier about um, female pain and how um, female identities are constructed around pain. I had this moment where I was like, God, I just my mind is kind of hurting with this. I don't know what exactly what I think about it. I wish I could just ask everyone I know what they think about it. And then, and then I thought maybe I can just ask everyone I know what they think about it. And so I ended up, that ends up becoming part of the piece that I send this email to about 30 women in my life saying, how do you think um, female identities get constructed around ideas of woundedness or pain. I just literally sent them that email and the responses I got were incredible, amazing, totally changed the way that I was thinking about the question, broadened the way that I was thinking about the question. And But again, it was one of those moments of sort of like, what if just shifts into, why oh, I can, yeah, why not? Exactly. So um, those are exciting moments. Leslie, would you mind reading that that shorter passage from the end of yes, the book now? Yeah, yeah um, sure. Be- before our break? Um, yeah, this is the very ending of the book and the final two paragraphs of the piece um, where I asked every woman that I knew what they thought about this question. For a long time, I have hesitated to write a book on woman, is how de Beauvoir starts one of the most famous books on women ever written. The subject is irritating, especially to women, and it is not new. Sometimes I feel like I'm beating a dead wound, but I say, keep bleeding, just right towards something beyond blood. The wounded woman gets called a stereotype, and sometimes she is, but sometimes she's just true. I think the possibility of fetishizing pain is no reason to stop representing it. Pain that gets performed is still pain. Pain turned trite is still pain. I think the charges of cliché and performance offer our closed hearts too many alibis, and I want our hearts to be open. I just wrote that. I want our hearts to be open. I mean it.
Thank you, Leslie Jamison. Um, that was from the Empathy Exams, uh, uh, Leslie's collection of essays out with Gray Wolf Press. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. We'll be right back. Blood roses, blood roses, back on the street now. Blood roses, blood roses, back on the street now. Can't forget the things you never said on days like these. Starts me thinking. Chickens get a taste, you'll make it. Chickens get a taste, you'll make it. Yes. You gave him your blood and your warm little down. He likes killing you after you're done. You think? Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, Leslie Jamison is here on Living Writers. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Um, and you've just heard another one of um, Leslie's picks, the Tori Amos song. And can you, <laughs> yeah, what were you so, just saying? Well, it was, it was amazing to hear this song again. So Blood Roses also shows up in this final essay. But um, I've, sh- I've shaved every place where you've been, boy, is one of the, is one of, one of the my, my favorite, my personal favorite Tori Amos lyrics of all time. And I definitely remember screaming it out proudly from my car when I was, learning to drive at like the age of 16 in Los Angeles so it holds a place in my heart (laughs) oh I didn't you know what I didn't even put that together actually like you being like growing up in LA and that that would be of course where you learn to drive that must have been how has that shaped you Leslie Jameson (laughs) what a question yeah no but it's 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 funny because definitely a lot of my relationship to music has to do I love listening to music when driving and you can sort of I think you can reach a kind of peak emotional experience with a song when you've like, when you're, you know, moving, moving. at a certain speed. Yeah. yeah. Cause you feel like the world is yours in this way. And I think a lot of that is shaped by, you know, in Los Angeles, when you're growing up in Los Angeles, so much of um, feeling free and liberated from your parents has to do with your relationship to the road. Cause that's how you get around. So, and I, skipped second grade so I was always very young so I learned to drive very late too so a lot of the time I was just at the mercy of my friends picking me up and stuff but when I finally got my license I just remember just feeling like I owned the world because I could finally move through it and so there is a whole set of songs that are like the anthems of that ownership I think um and what are some of them yeah so Tori was uh Tori and Ani who I 
stubbornly refer to by their first names are definitely two of those singers. Um, I also, you know, I remember listening to um, Tom Petty, like yes. Free Fallen, and that's like a great L.A. song, too. Um remember listening to some Led Zeppelin. I have two older brothers, and so there are certain strands of my musical taste that are very, like, girl you know, there's the Tori Ani stuff, but then there's also these things that I inherited from them. So like you too, I loved like, you know, some of Joshua Tree I associate with driving around Southern California. Um my brother was a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, so the, like Led Zeppelin. Like so there were certain parts of my musical taste that were like these um other bits of my DNA making their way into the mix. <laughs> <laughs> Big brothers. Yeah. yeah exactly. in, in a good way. Exactly. Yeah. Um where was the first place you drove to? Can you remember? Uh, I guess it would have been home from the DMV. I think I went out. There was a, there was a, like one, there was like a cheesecake factory that like me and my friends loved going to. I mean, I was hardly like a That's rebel. of a time. That's yeah. of a time. <laughs> I know, although I've been to Cheesecake Factory pretty recently, I have to confess. But um, yeah, we, we, I think that we like went out to dinner. I mean, I was, I was definitely not like you know, doing coke off the windshield or something like that. I wasn't really a, a bad girl in most of high school. But um, yeah, I think it was like the key ingredients were like friends, you know, sort of angst, anthem and wheels like that was what it took. So <laughs> and sun, haze, the ocean. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, some salt. <laughs> salt is actually necessary. That's great. The That's salt wind. Yeah. yeah. Have you been have you spent time out like near the Pacific? And yes. Yeah. 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 And briefly in L.A. Lived there a few months. Only, yeah. And yeah. Then, um, headed north to the Pacific Northwest. But Leslie, can you tell me tell and tell the listeners, everyone, about your tattoo? Oh yeah, because sure. It figures in; it's the epigram mm-hmm. on the book as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, my tattoo is like uh, down my um, my forearm, and it's a Latin phrase: um, "Homo sum humani nil a me alienum puto," which means in English, "I am human; nothing human is alien to me." And it's from it's taken from a play called The Self Tormentor by this Roman dramatist named Terence M. And I heard it initially, um, and it just clung to me like I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I loved that. I loved the rhythm of it. I am human. Nothing human is alien to me. And the sentiment of it that we could find some of ourselves in everything around us, um, even if it's not perfectly true. I like it as a kind of almost like a North star or something to follow. Um, and so my, my first, the first way that I sort of decided to bring it into my life was by making it the epigraph to the book. But then I decided to I guess, like take it to the next level and put it on my arm. I had, I had wanted a tattoo for a long time and I felt like I was waiting for the image or idea that I just kept coming back to like I wanted a tattoo to be like a reminder of something something I couldn't escape from like almost like um a promise mm-hmm. that my present self was going to make to a future self that that future self was going to be reminded of it um and I've loved having it I mean it's been a real adventure to have it honestly because especially I got it in July and so for the first couple months that I had it I wasn't I was it was always visible and I mean, so many, so many people want to talk about it, you know, and so many people have ideas about it. And I think because it's in another language, there's like a natural opener where if it was just in English and somebody said like they would have to offer a thought about it. But this way they can be like, oh, what does it say? That's like their entry point. And then, you know, they usually do have some 
question or opinion or sometimes I've, I've gotten a little bit of pushback, which is also really interesting to me. Somebody once asked me what it meant. I told him and he offered me a job. I was like, I was like, oh, I don't really need a job, but like, what is like, what, what is the job? Exactly. Did you know? <laughs> would you, oh, would you like a job? <laughs> I was like, I was sort of like, what job does this tattoo qualify me for? Um, but yeah, it was, what was it? What was it? Was, it? it was a, you know, it made sense. It was like a, it was a receptionist job, but it was for um, like a labor activism uh, nonprofit, I think. And so there was definitely I think there was like a spirit of social justice that he felt was like common between the tattoo and the position. Um, but I, I, I kind of hadn't anticipated the, the social dimensions of the tattoo, I guess, when I first got it. So you don't really need you might not need a CV, folks. Just yeah. Get, what, choose yeah. wisely your tattoo. Exactly. Somewhere pretty visible. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what's going to happen to you. I know. Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's funny cuz I sometimes I ask people I've asked people about their tattoos, but now that I have one I realize like I am not the first person to ask, you know, I realize right. that I'm sort of part of a ongoing pattern that keeps playing itself out across their lives. So, <laughs> but and part of it is to be asked maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and have that, that connection because it's a visible absolutely. marker. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And I think that's, I, yeah, I think that's right on that. That's sort of part of, it's not just an incidental byproduct. It's sort of part of the intention. And I think at a certain point I had to admit that even though I hadn't told myself consciously that I wanted to talk to people about my tattoo, I like, I think some part of me knew that I was going to end up in those conversations and probably some part of me on a less conscious level wanted that. Or or you were open to it. You or, felt like or, it yeah. was part. Yeah, of yeah. The experience. Yeah, of it. Yeah. Otherwise, it, yeah, it could have been somewhere like on your back that was usually or yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Why did I want it here? That's probably part of it. And it and it feels in that way. It also feels related to the idea of the book, which is the sense of sort of all lives being connected. Like I feel like there is something where it's like engaging with strangers in this particular way is is like enacting enacting that entanglement to just like on the level of the drugstore encounter so <laughs> and it's what you do it seems like it's it is part of what you do as a as a person mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not just as a writer but it's part of what seems to make you a writer too Leslie yeah yeah I think that impulse yeah I think that kind of curiosity I mean it's funny I used to be a very shy person and so I've never identified as being somebody who liked to talk to strangers and I still, I mean, even I do a good amount of interviewing as part of my writing practice, but I still always get kind of nervous before an interview. Like, um, so that's part of, that's part of me too, that shyness and that fear. But I think pushing back against that shyness and fear, there is this really strong abiding curiosity about what makes other people tick. So I always, um, that's always a kind of fuel too. your, your essay, um, listening to you then, Leslie, it reminds me of your essay when you go into the prison to talk with Charlie, uh, the long distance runner, um, who you had met at, at an early in an earlier essay mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, but this feeling of um, even when you were heading driving towards the prison, you were already making plans for what you were going to do afterwards. Yeah. And yeah. that's so yeah. I, that tension mm -hmm. and, and that inner, um, I guess, maybe feeling the release of kind of getting through that might be the shyness too mm -hmm, like because mm -hmm. at that moment it would be over and, right but right. still going still right going <laughs> right 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 no and I think that's a wonderful I think that's a wonderful point that that's part of why I was thinking about the end from the beginning was because for me there is always a kind of relief or release that comes 
when you don't have to perform for another person anymore, whatever form that performance takes, whether that performance is self-expression or whether that performance is asking the right questions or, you know, that I, there's... Being what someone needs, you you perceive that they need. Or exactly, so. exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think with Charlie, the this um, ultra-distance runner that I was visiting in this West Virginia prison... There was a sense, I was very nervous about asking the right questions, and that becomes part of the piece too, that nervousness, um, because I knew that, I think I was daunted a bit by the extremity of his situation, and I knew that part of why I was drawn to writing the piece was that incarceration was an experience that was hard for me to wrap my mind around, just the fact that this is... um so institutionalized and normalized in this country that we put people's bodies in a confined space and so many people for so many acts and like and for so long a time and for so long a time um and there's just something mind-boggling and disturbing about that to me and just how can we even understand what that could possibly feel like if you haven't experienced it and i do think there's a way that you just can't but i think that that was what was motivating me but that was also what was making me feel anxious about how what what kind of questions could i possibly ask like how does it feel to not be able to see your kids like how do you get at that emotional reality of somebody's life so I think part of when I was picturing like what kind of food am I going to get once I'm out of prison the, like oh, oh, after, or, right, 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 right. the there vending was, machine was going to be your meal ticket there was, right, right there you. was the vending machines on the inside and then everything else on the outside but I think part of part of um, fantasizing about 3 p.m. when I was going to leave was this feeling that I wanted so much to do a good job of representing this thing that felt deeply upsetting to me. But the desire to access it and the feeling of how difficult it would be to access also was giving me this um, felt like a kind of weight or a burden, uh, the burden of a self-imposed calling or something and that I, I wanted to be on the other side of that feeling of burden too or some part of me craved not feeling its weight so much so heavily and it, and it seems Leslie that these um the, this curiosity and this um willingness to try to understand or to be inside a, a burden or to uh, and of someone else's yeah I, I can see how hard it's to talk about it because it's not like you're sharing it it's not um but in some ways you did ease charlie's by writing those letters like mm-hmm. i was thinking about that like mm-hmm, that must have been a mm-hmm. lifeline for him too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but the writing of these essays um it, it's it's wonderful to see because it is a way of seeing how you're understanding the world mm-hmm. and it's and you're like like you talk about james Agi um uh like sort of going like clawing his way towards sentimentality mm-hmm. or so not being risking it or so not not only that but being um unafraid um but uh i feel like being an essayist that's also something that you're you're making yourself vulnerable you're you're risking doing that mm-hmm. uh <laughs> now suddenly risk to say risk sounds cliche too but but to, to, to put it on the page like right. with your ideas and to lay open those right well and and to me honestly in some of these pieces there really did feel like a risk like trying to tell the story of somebody else's incarceration I think there is a lot of risk in that because you're 
you are telling a story that you fundamentally don't understand, which is a weird and tricky kind of limbo. And it's not a limbo I ever try to pretend I'm standing outside of. Like, I always try to acknowledge that. Like, here are the limits of what I can know or what I can get about what Charlie's going through. But that, to me, is is a form of risk to um, recognize how impossible it is to say something or understand something and try to say it or understand it anyway. And so are you so for your for your work, are you still in some ways always writing essays because they when you gave us the example of, well, when I was two years away from the experience, I was able to see this piece like that. And then four years at this way. Um, So is it something, Leslie, where you're you're always sort of working on some essays? You always have a journal or. Yeah, I think and I think and I think that's a great way of putting it, because even when I'm just writing down what happened to me today, I think that's part of the early work of what might someday become an essay. So. So it's always it's always in the works. Yeah, in some stage of process. Okay, okay. <laughs> Let's take a short break yeah. and then we'll come back. Um, today on Living Writers, Leslie Jamison is here. We've got her collection of essays, The Empathy Exams. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Leslie Jamison is here. Um, Many thanks um, to Leslie for coming and talking. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a real pleasure. And I love the like fantasy football league dimension of getting to choose some songs for the program, too. (laughs) Well, and thanks to Lizzie for finding them and for um, being behind the glass engineering today um, for the first time with text. Um, also behind the glass. So um, m- many thanks for uh, making us sound good, guys, and picking out the tunes that that Leslie chose. This is great. Um, okay, so we've got the empathy exams here, and we've been talking a- our way around and through and up and over and um, empathy. <laughs> so maybe it's time to hear some from the title piece. Yeah, I would love. Um, I w- I might just read the first couple pages, which sort of sets the scene of the first essay and uh, really of the collection as a whole. The Empathy Exams. 
My job title is medical actor, which means I play sick. I get paid by the hour. Medical students guess my maladies. I'm called a standardized patient, which means I act toward the norms set for my disorders. I'm standardized lingo SP for short. I'm fluent in the symptoms of preeclampsia and asthma and appendicitis. I play a mom whose baby has blue lips. Medical acting works like this. You get a script and a paper gown. You get $13.50 an hour. Our scripts are 10 to 12 pages long. They outline what's wrong with us, not just what hurts, but how to express it. They tell us how much to give away and when. We are supposed to unfurl the answers according to specific protocol. The scripts dig deep into our fictive lives, the ages of our children and the diseases of our parents, the names of our husbands' real estate and graphic design firms, the amount of weight we've lost in the past year, the amount of alcohol we drink each week. My specialty case is Stephanie Phillips, a 23-year-old who suffers from something called conversion disorder. She is grieving the death of her brother, and her grief has sublimated into seizures. Her disorder is news to me. I didn't know you could convulse from sadness. She's not supposed to know either. She's not supposed to think the seizures have anything to do with what she's lost. Stephanie Phillips, Psychiatry, SP Training Materials. Case Summary. You are a 23-year-old female patient experiencing seizures with no identifiable neurological origin. You can't remember your seizures, but are told you froth at the mouth and yell obscenities. You can usually feel a seizure coming before it arrives. The seizures began two years ago, shortly after your older brother drowned in the river just south of the Bennington Avenue Bridge. He was swimming drunk after a football tailgate. You and he worked at the same miniature golf course. These days you don't work at all. These days you don't do much. You're afraid of having a seizure in public. No doctor has been able to help you. Your brother's name was Will. Medication history. You are not taking any medications. You've never taken antidepressants. You've never thought you needed them. Medical history. Your health has never caused you any trouble. You've never had anything worse than a broken arm. Will was there when you broke it. He was the one who called the paramedics and kept you calm until they came. Our simulated exams take place in three suites of purpose-built rooms. Each room is fitted with an examination table and a surveillance camera. We test second and third year medical students in topical rotations, pediatrics, surgery, psychiatry. On any given exam day, each student must go through encounters, their technical title, with three or four actors playing different cases. A student might have to palpate a woman's 10 on scale of 10 abdominal pain, then sit across from a delusional young lawyer and tell him that when he feels a writhing mass of worms in his small intestine, the feeling is probably coming from somewhere else. Then this med student might arrive in my room, stay straight-faced, and tell me that I'm about to go into premature labor to deliver the pillow strapped to my belly, or nod solemnly as I express concern about my ailing plastic baby. He's just so quiet. Once the 15-minute encounter has ended, the medical student leaves the room, and I fill out an evaluation of his-her performance. The first part is a checklist— Which crucial pieces of information did he-she manage to elicit? Which ones did he-she leave uncovered? The second part of the evaluation covers affect. 
Checklist item 31 is generally acknowledged as the most important category, voiced empathy for my situation problem. We are instructed about the importance of this first word, voiced. It's not enough for someone to have a sympathetic manner or use a caring tone. The students have to say the right words to get credit for compassion. Thanks, Leslie. Yeah, that part is so chilling in a way because I want to feel, I want to say that it feels like false then instead of what you would be maybe reading from the person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and that's something that has been that distinction between going through the motions of expressing empathy and somehow actually expressing empathy or sort of saying the words versus showing it with your affect. I think it's a really tricky distinction and one that I'm not necessarily sure I fall on one side or the other. Like I think I might, my inclination going into this piece might've been to be wholly on the side of sort of show it with your affect. It's, you know, (laughs) it's more than just saying the words or something, but I actually, part of writing this piece made me think about how much it can matter to kind of make certain choices to, um, yeah, say things even kind of before you mean them or as a prompt to meaning them. And uh, when this particular essay, the title essay, um, The Empathy Exams, first was published earlier this year, I heard from a lot of, I heard from a lot of people, but I heard from a lot of doctors, actually, and even people who run, I heard from the woman who runs the SP program, the standardized patient program at Yale. And um, I, and a, a big thing that came up when I would go, kind of go back and forth with some of these doctors is also this issue that doing things can make you feel them, like the feedback loop can go in that direction where, um, you know, I mean, there's all this research on, you know, smiling more can actually make you feel happier and um, saying, I care about what you're feeling, can, you know, it not always. The caring, yeah, perhaps. it can it can catalyze it. And that to me is, you know, I feel like I grew up in this kind of with this understanding of authenticity that you always had to mean something before you did it, like for it to be authentic. And a lot of this essay is challenging that order, that hierarchy. So that's one of your like, so it's so interesting because essay is, is it's about like, like that the origin to make an attempt, right? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and so it's you are discovering like you didn't know that when you started, right? This you had this idea, right, right, right. And you start examining it or turning it around. And- right, right. And I think and I think that issue of attempt also comes back to um, what we were saying before about turning um, what if into why not, you know, where it's like there's there are things that are an attempt on the level of concept or intellectual inquiry, but everything is also an attempt on the level of form. And so you have these breakthroughs where you're like, oh, the form can work a different way or the method of writing this piece can work a different way. Um, like the um, ultra marathon or in prison, Charlie in prison piece that we were talking about before the break. Um, you know, when I that piece ended up feeling really like an attempt as well because it surprised me as I was doing it. I thought it was just going to be about Charlie. And then I went down to visit him in West Virginia and realized I wanted to write about that place too. I wanted to write about strip mining and I wanted to write about the land and I wanted to write about how the West Virginia economy had been damaged over and over and over again. And that's why they needed to do things like let people build a lot of prisons there, you know? And so um, I, the essay turn out to be about a whole set of things that I didn't think it was going to be about. And that's 
I think, another extension of this idea of like, I'm just attempting, I'm just putting something out there and then following it where it goes. And a reason why you, it sounds like, will keep doing it. Yeah, right. That it's endless. And that, and I think that surprise is just part of the pleasure on an experiential level, too. It's that way that your own expectations, especially when you're writing nonfiction, like can get defeated and thwarted, but also like kind of re-inspired through those moments of obstruction or detouring. It's, it also seems... And, and how you're you're taking on the nonfiction, Leslie, is that you're saying willing to say these very um, very personal things. Um, and in a, in a in a piece in Harper's, um, I think you you mentioned it might be as a way because you're also saying very personal things about others. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think certainly like when I was figuring out what order I wanted to put the essays in part of what I was thinking about and part of why it made sense to me to put the title essay first wasn't just because it was had the same title as the collection but because I wanted to open with some moments of exposure in order to give that to a reader to say look I'm willing to show you certain parts of my own pain and maybe that can help you trust me when I take us through the essays that follow into experiences of other people's pain like it sort of it felt like I was setting up or my hope was that I could set up a dynamic between myself and a reader that would then um, give us a basis of intimacy as we move through the other material yes and and checklist number 31 how that's working in your own story in the part of the essay is 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 so strong. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Leslie, we, I love also that you make bold statements throughout <laughs> this, this collection. Um, empathy is contagion. Um, that's also in the James Agee mm-hmm. section that felt like you, you're sort of channeling a kindred spirit mm-hmm. with him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you have, um, is, would your, would part of your advice to young essayists or old essayists or, in between essays, <laughs> um, would it be to to be bold and and to and then explore the boldness and or what would you say? Yeah, I'm. Yes, I do. I, d- I definitely believe in people being bold. I think um, part of the part of the potential peril with huge bold statements is I think it can get problematic when they're all pointing in the same direction <laughs> or when you're not willing to question them. And so I think a lot of my mode, I mean, I do think that there's, I hope that there is a feeling of boldness and even a feeling of kind of manifesto sometimes here in that final passage that I read feels like a real declaration. I mean it. I want our hearts to be open. I just wrote that. I mean it. Um, I like, that's a real, there's a real tone there. But, but I also feel like my primary mode is really one of questioning and sort of making assertions and then. And searching. Yeah. And so I, I, I would also ask of young essayists or, or old essayists or in between essayists (laughs) that they sort of um, reckon with their own boldness and are willing to interrogate their own boldness too. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Leslie Jameson, today on Living Writers. Her collection out this year, just recently, actually, out this this like this last month, um, the Empathy Exams from Gray Wolf Press. Press. Go and get your copy now. Um, thanks for listening to Living Writers. Um, thanks again to Lizzie and Tex for engineering. Thank you for having me, Leslie. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thanks yeah. for being here. Come back anytime. Yeah. Okay? Thank you. I'd and, love to. And, uh, <laughs> um, and thanks to all you out there for listening. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Lastly, that was.
Burke driving out to Robinson, open for three, got it! Glenn Robinson, the third, ties the game, 46 to 46. Burke for three, and hits it. He has confidence and swagger, and right there he shows it, not afraid to shoot the basketball. Three-point basket by Nick Stauskas. What a shot from the parking lot. That was 30-foot shot. I, that was definitely 30 feet. He is the best shooter on this team. One of the best shooters in the country, and he wants to be there in any offensive possession, especially this late in the game. Hardaway going around the screen, lays it up and in. Thomas right in his face. Hardaway goes over. The Big Ten's leading scorer, high off the glass. Morgan laid it up. It looked like there was a little drama on the oh, part of Howell. The replay tells all. He definitely won the Academy Award on that last one. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor.